Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Please go ahead and have a seat for a moment. I'm going to explain something um, new for summer that we're going to do within our liturgy. So if you've been around for a little while, um, or if you haven't, I'll explain, that around here we do something that we call formations. And here at Monsieur de Wrigleyville, formations are what we consider to be cohorts, workshops, and practices that deepen our formation in the way of Jesus. Earlier this year, we did a couple different formation cohorts on the subjects of Sabbath and on prayer. And so we decided this summer to bring this right into our Sunday morning liturgy or order of service. And this time we're going to do a formations on the topic of scripture. But rather than a cohort, what we're doing is we are all going to join in a Q&R, a question and response each week to help us feel comfortable with how to engage with these holy ancient texts that we call the Bible. So this week, the question that we're going to respond to is, why are we having formations scripture in our Sunday liturgy? I'm so glad you all asked. So this summer, we are going to do three different Old Testament series under the umbrella of ancient scrolls. And so often, if you've been around church at all, you'll notice that Sermon series are very often rooted in the teachings or life of Jesus, the Gospels, or maybe the instructions and encouragement to the early church, the epistles, like the one in Ephesians that we've been in for a long time now. And that is all very well and good. But there is a whole lot more in this book than those portions of the Bible. And we want to talk about the fullness of our holy scriptures. We want to be equipped and confident to engage with all of it, even the ones that are a little bit strange or foreign to us. And that is an interesting goal because there's a lot of variety going on in these holy scrolls. The documents written thousands of years ago in languages very different than our own, in ancient languages actually. But we know and believe that scripture is the inspired word of God, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Scripture, this is the inspired word of God. The Holy Spirit of God, of our triune God, inspired human authors to reveal what God intended and still intends for us to know. I am honestly always amazed that that was God's choice to partner with humans, real moments of time, real contexts to reveal inspiration that is timeless. It could have been handed to us like the 10 commandment style, right? But that wasn't God's plan or choice. And that does leave us with mysteries and questions. But we can trust in faith that this is God's plan for our engagement with Holy Scripture. At Miss Uday Chicago, we believe the Bible is the word of God and therefore has eternal relevance. It remains our standard for truth in the midst of constantly changing worldviews, cultures, and social norms. But the scrolls and letters and et cetera were written in particular places in the world and particular times in history and different styles than the styles that we have in our literature today. So the way that we interpret these holy ancient scrolls can lead to a lot of different opinions. And here, 
that's okay. That's okay. So the goal of our formation scripture throughout the summer is not to solve the Bible together or get to a place of absolute certainties or things like that that make you use air quotes if you're me apparently. But the goal is to help us feel equipped to engage with texts in the Holy Word of God that are relevant, complicated, and worth the wrestling in our opinion. And so why are we doing this all summer? That's why we're putting formations right into our summer liturgy so we all can feel just a little more equipped to answer some of the weird and tough questions that we have about how to engage with the Bible. So we're going to dive right in this morning and we're going to go to Judges in the first of our three summer Old Testament series. This one we're calling Ancient Scrolls, Timeless Stories. And so that's the end of our formation portion. If I could ask you one more time to please rise in reverence for the word of God. We are going to be reading this morning from Judges 4 verses 1 through 10 in the NIV. If you'd like to follow in your pew Bible, it starts on page 192. And I'm going to go right out of the gate and tell you that when I picked this scripture, Sam Tinkin very graciously said to me, if that's what you're going to pick, I think it would be best if you read it then. So give me a little bit of patience. He was right. Oh, here, my glasses are not on my head. I'm going to need these. And here we go. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that Ehud was dead, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jobin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth in Hagoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lepidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramar and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abioam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jobin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went out with Barak, to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went, out, went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, I thank you um, for all of your holy scriptures. I pray that Holy Spirit, while we are here gathered in the name of Jesus, um, I honor your presence. I pray that you will help us to um, engage with stories that feel uh, different, challenging, and just give us um, discernment and a sense of your presence as we just look at these ancient narratives today. We trust you and your work through all of your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Can you believe I went through all of that and then messed up on the difference between in and out? Did you guys catch that? That was the word. Okay, whatever. I tried. I, no joke, when the practicing reading of the scripture is like 
a major part of your prep in the morning, I feel like that's a, that's a good sign. You're in the Old Testament, guys. Here we go. We are in it. We are in the book of Judges, and we're talking first about Deborah. Now, a quick Old Testament summary, you guys. I'm going to do such an overview here, but not everybody knows the arc of the meta-narrative of Scripture. And so it's important to know, where are we in the story of the people of God? I'm going to fast forward just a little bit. We're going to fast forward past creation, past Noah's Ark, and we're in a time now where the world is populating, okay? So a little bit of a fast forward, but let's take a look at where the people of God are in the Ark of the Old Testament scriptures. God has decided to make for God's self a holy nation set apart to reflect his character in a world full of other nations Uh, honoring and worshiping other gods and living in different ways. So God says, starting with this gentleman named Abram, I will take you out and make a nation through you. Abram's name becomes Abraham, and then his descendants after him start a period known as the patriarchs. So the patriarchs start with um, Genesis 12, uh, 1 to 3, I think. The Lord had said to Abram, later known as Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all people on earth will be blessed through you. So God picks one human who, by the way, at this time has no children and says, hey, I'm starting something new and it's happening through your bloodline. And through your bloodline, eventually all people on earth will be blessed. And that starts a period known as the period of patriarchs. Abraham, who has Isaac, who has Jacob, who's renamed Israel. There won't be a quiz. You don't have to remember all of this. But Israel... Jacob then has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes that we hear talk about sometimes in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of these is Joseph. He's a favorite of these 12. He is not the oldest. He's the bibe, and he gets a special, special magic technicolor dream coat. The other brothers are jealous. They sell him into slavery. He goes to the land of Egypt as a slave. God gives favor to him. And eventually there's famine in the land where all of his brothers and everybody are. They all come to Egypt and they're saved. Hooray, Jacob's able to save us. So the nation of Israel, all those tribes are now in Egypt and they're flourishing because Jacob found favor, but then they get too big. And Pharaoh in Egypt is like, this isn't good for things. And he enslaves the whole nation. So now we're in slavery in Egypt. And so God then calls Moses, this very big important figure in Old Testament literature, and he has Moses lead his people back out of Egypt, out of slavery, in an emotion called the Exodus, the most amazing liberation of, of, from oppression of God's people that God did. An amazing story. That's the Exodus. We are free from the oppression now as a nation of Israel. Oops, we got to spend 40 years in the wilderness because we kind of didn't follow what God said to do. That's a side part of that story that's kind of important. And then after Moses, Joshua finally is able to lead the people into the promised land that God had said so long ago, I'm leading you out of Egypt and into the promised land. 
How is that for like a big story in one moment? Okay, there's the Old Testament part. Okay, that's where we are. But it's really important that we know that because after Joshua, we come to this book called Judges. It's a historical narrative that tells us the story of the succession of some leaders that came after Joshua has passed away. And so the people are in the promised land, but their leadership is in question. God appointed Moses. God transitioned that leadership from Moses to his assistant, Joshua. These leaders were very clear, and now we're in a period where it's not as clear. But this part I want us all to keep in mind throughout the book of Judges. These stories are people who already knew and had experienced within very short piece of their collective history. They'd experienced the redeeming power of God's love grace and salvation already. They knew it. They knew it deep from the exodus and from the provision and from all of it, the manna in the wilderness, all of it. They knew deep in their collective minds as a people, as the people of God, they knew their identity. They knew about the covenants that God had made, that promise to the patriarchs. They knew this firsthand. So when we read these stories, we need to presuppose the knowledge of salvation from the slavery in Egypt, and we need to presuppose the knowledge of grace and relationship with Yahweh, their name for God, Yahweh. They knew this. So the question in Judges that we're asking is how are they going to respond and enjoy this blessing that they've been given as God's people? And the short answer is not so great. So that's where we are in the book of Judges. Now, judges aren't like courtroom judges. They're something different, more like a, a tribal chief, military edge to it, uh, political, and as we see in Deborah, also spiritual leader. We see this line two times in Judges. Repetition in the Old Testament is very important to pay attention to. And while it comes later in the book, it's important for us to set the scene in the time of the Judges. In those days, the Israelites had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. One of the commentaries that I was reading said this was kind of the Wild West period of Israel's history as the people continued to settle into the promised land, but there was yet no king to bring order to their chaos. Now, this is important to know too. Throughout the previous parts of the Old Testament, we knew that God's heart was that God would be the king of these people. He set up a system of, of priests and temple presence and atonement and sacrifice to mediate the, the, the divine presence with the realness of being human. God had taken care of that and wanted to be their king. He had set up laws that were meant to reflect how they lived in a way that reflected God's heart for justice and mercy. He had laws set to have these people look different to reflect him because they were going out into a world in this promised land that was full of other tribes living very different lives. But this period shows that there was a sense of chaos. So there were stronger nations still around them. Even though Joshua had taken them into the promised land and there were lots of battles and they won a lot, they did not win them all. And so these stronger nations, again, think tribes here, right? Like these little, not little, these important nation, state, tribe things were around them. And Israel had been set into this promised land to be holy and set apart. 
but they didn't drive out all the Canaanites already there. And the concern that we sense through scripture is that Israel would be corrupt if they were living among people who were living so differently. They might worship other gods. They might follow along in child sacrifice. They might uh, not live in ways that reflect justice and mercy. And so that's why they were supposed to be set apart. Holy was set apart. And so what we end up having throughout the book is a cycle. And this cycle is agreed upon in a lot of the different things that I read, but I stole the words from the Bible Project. Um, Although Matt will tell you I just used the recycling sign because I couldn't do it as cool of a graphic as the Bible Project. Look at the Bible Project. They do a good job. Um, But the the cycle starts up at top, right? We're living in sin and... Oh, you know what? I'm going to just read this from here instead of the slide. So, okay. The Israelites do evil. Start at the top. Yahweh becomes angry. He sells them into the hands of the enemy, like not for money, but he gives them over to the place where they are and allows the natural consequence of their choices to happen to them. He sells them into the hand of the enemy. They are oppressed for many years. In this passage here, we heard 20 years of oppression. They cry out to Yahweh for help. He raises up a deliverer, who in this book is the judge, to whom he gives the spirit of God. The enemy is subdued, the land has rest, and the judge rules for many years. Deborah rules, I believe, for 40. So this is the cycle. But then we do it again and again, and there we have this period that's known as judges. So let's look specifically at Deborah. She is serving already as a prophet. Israelites went to her to have the disputes decided. We read that in the start of the passage. So she's already serving in a spiritual leadership sense as uh, one who has the spiritual discernment to decide. When we're having a dispute, we choose to go to Deborah and we believe that the wisdom of God will be spoken through her and we will go with her decision. So in this passage that I just read, she sends for Barak and gives him a message from the Lord. She's serving as a prophetess, remember? It was a prophet of God. And so she gives him a message from the Lord. The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men. I will lead Sisera. Sisera is the enemy's military commander, okay? It's important because later, so Sisera has one boss. That'll come in later. But he's the military commander. Okay, I will lead Sisera with his chariots and troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. She's gonna go play bait while he takes an army and because Sisera is gonna go to where she is and then the army can go attack. And what does Barak say? It has a similar ring to what Moses said. He said, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Remember in Exodus 33, or you don't have to remember, sorry. So you know, in Exodus 33, Moses said something similar. When Yahweh gave Moses instruction on where to lead the people, Moses said back to Yahweh, if your presence doesn't go with us, do not send us up from here. Like, we don't want to go without you. That would be ridiculous. Just you got to come with us, right? So this has a very similar ring, doesn't it? It even sounds like a, a similar tone. And I don't think we... Uh, I don't think there's cowardice at all here in Barak. I think that what we're hearing is God's presence is clearly with you. I want to be with that presence for any chance of victory over this enemy. Similar to what Moses was saying, like your presence is what matters. Barak is seeing that presence in Deborah and is, she has an enormous amount of political and spiritual authority for a woman in that culture at that time. Barak sees that, he honors that, He is not deterred by gender conversations, and he is following the anointing. 
That is what Barak is doing in this moment. The authority is clearly from God and Barak is ready to follow clear spiritual leadership. Sisera hears and he heads over to the spot they're going with the troops. And then Deborah, our prophetess, tells Barak. Deborah says to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak now knows he has the Lord's go ahead for this battle to take place. And Sisera the enemy military leader, he takes off on foot. Now, in an interesting twist, we learn of somebody new named Jael. Jael, remember I said Sisera has a boss? So uh, the boss has an alliance with this other guy and Jael is the other guy's wife. So these two are like close enough that they should be in um, safe spaces with each other. They're in the same alliance, close connection with the same alliance, right? Jael invites Sisera to rest in her tent. There's a lot of implications here. First of all and foremost, the one I want to point out is the rules of hospitality in ancient culture, you guys. There are other passages in the Bible that are very disturbing where people will go to literally any lengths to make sure their guests are taken care of. Hospitality in Old Testament is something beyond what our culture would comprehend. So she has invited him in. Think hospitality rules while you read this part. She tucks him in with a blankie and some milk. <laughs> Even though he asked for water, there's very maternal sounds here, right? So Gile went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come, Lord, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. She so he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened up a skin of milk, gave him a drink and covered him up. And he took a great big nap. And she took a peg and drove it through his temple into the ground and killed him while he slept. Welcome to the book of Judges. <laughs> These are the things that we read in the Old Testament. And we're like, what am I supposed to do with that? Paul is not unpacking this for us in a way that makes sense to our church today. But that's okay. This is why we're going to do these things. Okay, so on that day, following up in uh, chapter 4, 23 and 24, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. So that Jabin was the one who was oppressing them. Sisera was his military commander. Once the military commander is dead, Enough chaos happens in the army that the Israelites are able to overtake them and victory is brought. Deborah, who is now also a worship leader, sings a song of praise to God that is probably one of the first recorded songs in Old Testament literature, which in and of itself is pretty cool. If you want to go and just like read Judges chapter 5 and be like, this is a song, the first recorded song that the people of God have. That's kind of neat. So anyway, she sings this song and commends Barak for his bravery and acknowledges that indeed what she said at first did come to pass, that Jael is indeed the woman who secured their victory over Sisera, right? Like Sisera fell to the hands of that woman and securing her role as a spiritual leader certainly as she leads the people into praise but importantly gives all credit to Yahweh God for the victory and then the nation has peace for 40 years but I mean what was the whole gig with that peg in the temple thing right we want to just stop and be like yay Deborah won and now we're praising God but I'm a little conflicted about the peg in the temple when I invited someone in for hospitality. I know the bad guy's dead, but 
that feels a lot like deception. And she's not really even an Israelite. And now, I don't know about ancient Near East hospitality. Is that okay? Let alone now we know Jesus taught us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, right? And so like, what do I do with this when Deborah has just praised someone who kind of feels like she did something that God wouldn't love? I'm confused. I'm confused. I won't project. I get confused when I read this passage and I think I'm not exactly sure what to do with this, but... We need to go back to our acknowledgments of how to engage with Old Testament ancient scrolls. These are not direct teachings, instructions, and encouragements of how to live as Christ followers. These are just not. They're a different category. They're not like gospel teachings of Jesus or the letter to the Ephesians or other letters to the early church. These are ancient historical narratives. And yes, they are the inspired word of God, but they don't act like we want them to. They are not promising to be clear and tidy in what is good and bad or how to live. That's not what their authors, including the Holy Spirit, were out to answer. I loved one of my professors of Old Testament, Ingrid Farrow, said once, she's like, sometimes it's not saying if it's good or bad, it's just saying what happened. And I had to sit and wrestle with that a little bit and be like, but it's the inspired word of God. But they're recording what happened. Okay, these get to be different. They're not out to answer what we sometimes go to the Bible for it to directly answer. That's not what historical narratives are always out to do. Sometimes the things recorded that happen to have happened are actually contrary to God's character. But part of the way that we come to know God's character is by reading the scriptures and hearing large picture themes and what we're seeing over the course of time in God revealing God's self, which of course is revealed in the most full through God's self as the son Jesus. But we're seeing a long, we can't take one little story and be like, so this is what God is telling us? Like, to do? No, 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 no. Put it in a much broader picture. We also can't toss aside what is hard for us to understand. So when we're trying to reconcile ancient texts as people now choosing to follow the way of Jesus, what do we do when our brains hurt a little bit trying to do that? And I would say that what we need to do is ask different questions than our first reaction. Was that okay? might be our first question. I mean, if I'm really mad at someone, does that mean? No, it does not. It absolutely does not. We know the way of Jesus. We know the way of Jesus, not to mention the laws of our land. Okay, we cannot go take a peg. No, 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 that's not what this is saying. And remember this ancient historical narrative isn't trying to answer that question for you, for me, Miss 2023 Chicagoland. Like that's not what they were focused on. They are trying to ask some different questions. If don't try to get a moral lesson out of every little piece you read, you need to look at the big picture Take a deep breath and know that the inspired word of God does not mean that God approved of everything that's recorded and what happened in the history of the people of Israel. And that's an important piece to know. Okay, so then what do we do? When we meditate on some stories like this, I would suggest that we ask different questions. Maybe not, so was that morally okay? Maybe that's not the most direct question to be asking, or maybe not most direct. Maybe that's not the best lens to try to squint through when reading stories like this. 
one that I think we might instead be asking throughout our look at all of the three stories. We're going to do three judges. The three stories of judges might be something more like, what do we learn about God and about ourselves from stories like these? Never removing the story as much as possible from the overarching story of what we're hearing. So not just about what happened in that tent, but put that occurrence into the broad cycle that we were seeing earlier. What is it that we are learning about God and about ourselves from stories like these? Messy, real, complicated stories of humans and God. What I'm going to give you this morning in close of this portion of our time of worship are just mine. They're not out of a commentary. I don't want to teach you what you should think. I want to demonstrate, here's my wrestle What's yours? And honestly, you guys, I would love to hear it. Like, send me your wrestle from a moment like this through the week. I would love to hear where you're wrestling. I just want to share as a demonstration, not as a finite list, some of the places that my mind goes when I look at a story like this. Number one, it's, it's sympathy. I realized this so strongly this weekend. I don't know what it is to live in a land where I've been under violent oppression for 20 years with no higher order of protection. When I can't cry out, uh, that's not fair, and assume that somebody's going to listen or care. I can't do that in this situation. So brief story, won't get into it now, yesterday, something very violent happened in my neighborhood, and I picked up the phone, and I called 911, and the police came, and the rest of the story went on. I had someone to call when something not okay and violent was happening, and I knew I could trust it. Now, I watched other people who were at the place where the police came feeling very not safe as they arrived. And my heart broke thinking, I just assumed I'm gonna call. And somebody else, as soon as they saw the same truck that was bringing me a sense of safety, went and hid in their home. And that's just here in Chicago where we have systems, never mind the systems like Andy was talking about in Guatemala where there is no safety net or the places where you can call out as loud as you want to, but there simply are not resources to do anything or you're ravaged by war and the whole world around you is unfair and nobody can answer your call when you're living in a sense of injustice. I have no idea what it's like to be Jael living in the midst of that violence, scared to death in my tent for 20 plus years, I don't know how long her story was, or anyone else. When I read this story and I think about the act it would take to do such a thing, I get sympathy. I don't know what it's like to not be able to call someone when I hear shots fired across my street. So that's the first thing that really struck me. I know that that doesn't mean that that's an answer. I know what Jesus says but it helps me to say in sympathy, I guess I don't know what it's like to be in your shoes. I am glad that God is the judge and I will trust that God guided you and that God will guide me, but I am not going to choose to be the judge of right and wrong throughout historical narratives. So that's number one for me is sympathy. Number two, Deborah's pretty cool. I like Deborah. 
I think she's awesome. I want to grow in confidence to know and trust the Lord's voice like she did. Even in the space of scary odds, you guys, violent oppressors, 20 years of being oppressed, and she had that confidence in the Lord's voice. Deborah's pretty cool. When I look at this story, I'm like, I want to grow in that confidence. I can see, I can learn from Deborah. I can learn that God does big things through unlikely people if they're willing. Barak, Deborah, and Jael, all included in that. I want to be willing. So that's something else I observe when I read this text. And the third thing that I would give, I think is a cycle comment that humbles me as a Christ follower now. This is not the original tent of the author was not for Christ followers today, but this is what I observe as a Christ follower today. As I go back to this, and I'm super humbled, you guys, because this was the cycle of a nation that we see again and again, and we'll continue to see throughout the book of Judges. But does it look at all a little bit like a microcosm of my own life, maybe? Or sometimes of us as a church, like capital C church, right? Not, I don't just mean Monsieur de Wrigleyville, although that could be too. But the, uh, the capital C church, when we see like, oh, she fell again. That was a big sin. And then there's just all of this uh, mess and and and. Uh, you just pressure against her and then weird things happening even within her to try to defend herself. It's a mess. And then hopefully, hopefully a group will repent, seek the Lord and be delivered into a fuller version again. And then she sees peace and then, oops. Or as an individual, I think you could probably relate to this. I know I can, and I'll just take this to individual. I always like to think of us corporately as well so that we do not deny the sins of our our society that are around us. As a city, we do this cycle, right? As a church within a city, 100% we do this cycle. And as me as a person, I have come from a place of sin where I've been under that oppression. I've repented and accepted the Lord. I feel deliverance. I go through a season of peace and then I, oops, and then I turn and repent again. But herein, not only do I find humility, but I find a reminder that the cycle in Judges that is so repetitive again and again has finally been changed forevermore through the blood of Jesus. And I can have gratitude because what I see in this is that I am living in a side of the fullness of this story where God saw our cycle so often repeated that God interjected a new way, a new covenant for us to not have to live forever oppressed by the same cycle, but instead offered a way towards freedom to accept the righteousness of Christ so that even when we sin, we can skip straight to the repentance part because of the Holy Spirit in us and what Christ has done. And we can repent and come right back and know that as we stand there after our last mistake, which may have been 30 minutes ago, whatever it is, we can stand there and know I repent, but I know I stand holy, righteous, and redeemed because Christ's body and very blood cover me and I stand before the Father in his righteousness before the Father's eyes, in Christ's righteousness. And so I end today saying these holy narratives were not all about pointing to Christ, but as a Christ follower now, I look humbly at this and I say, thank you, Jesus, that you were a part of a cycle that could not be broken any other way and now can be broken through you. And I follow you, Jesus, to let others know that that oppression stage is not the stage we need to be stuck in. That there is repentance, there is deliverance in the name of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. Um, I...
love your willingness to meet me and us in the wrestling of strange stories. Um, I trust in your holiness of scripture. Um, and I thank you for community to do wrestling with, a community here um, in our gospel communities and in our friend groups over brunch to just talk and process, a community um, throughout history of scholars and big thinkers and big prayers who have been pondering deep things of you. God, this summer, may we plunge the depths of you and just find more and more comfort in knowing that you long to be found by us when we seek you. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.